Hello London, we are ready for your vote. Hello, I'm Stephen Perkins, welcoming you to another edition of Douzepois, the still quite new podcast that celebrates the sometimes weird but always wonderful world of the Eurovision Song Contest. We are with you every Monday, taking a look at the latest Eurovision headlines with regular deep dives into the history of the contest. Thank you, listener, for allowing me into your ears once more. And having just said that out loud, I am never saying that again. Before we get going, a quick reminder that if you aren't doing so already, you should definitely follow us at bingewatch underscore pod on Twitter, where you can get in contact with us if that's a thing you'd like to do. And you can keep up to date not only with Douzepois, but also with my good friends Ian and Hannah over on the Mothership. So, what's in the headlines right now? Let's take a quick look. More exciting news is coming out of Liverpool in terms of the events surrounding this year's contest. From the 1st to the 14th of May, the quote-unquote pre-party to end all pre-parties will be held in the city. Described by Culture Liverpool's Claire McColgan as a Scouse-slash-Ukrainian mashup of brilliance, the projects include a mass kite fly and a three-day queer fantasia at Shavas Park. In one of the less obvious Eurovision mashups, 12 books have been selected for the Big Eurovision Read in association with BBC Arts, aiming to create a dialogue between book lovers and Eurovision fans. Titles on the list include... High Fidelity by Nick Hornby, Soul Music by Terry Pratchett, and The Music Shop by Rachel Joyce. And finally, the ballot has now opened for displaced Ukrainians to apply for tickets to this year's Eurovision Song Contest. 3,000 tickets are available across the three live shows and six rehearsal shows. So if you are Ukrainian and based in the UK via the Homes for Ukraine scheme, the Ukraine Family scheme, or the Ukraine Extension scheme, you can apply now at the gov.uk website but don't delay as the application process closes at 4pm on Thursday 6th of April. Now, with Liverpool gearing up to be the host city for Eurovision 2023, we thought it would be a good time to cast a look way, way back in the mists of time to 1998, the last time that the United Kingdom hosted the Eurovision Song Contest. What happened back then? And what lessons should we be taking from it? Let's find out. Following Katrina and the Waves' victory in Dublin in 1997, the United Kingdom was set to host the contest for the record-breaking eighth time overall, and for the first time since 1982 when it was held in Harrogate. Naturally, lots of cities across the nation expressed an interest in hosting Eurovision, including Aberdeen, Bournemouth, Brighton, Edinburgh, Harrogate again, Inverness, Newcastle and Sheffield. But the production team drew up an eventual shortlist consisting of Belfast, Birmingham, Cardiff, Glasgow, London and Manchester. And in August 1997, Birmingham's National Indoor Arena, that's right, the home of Gladiators, was chosen as the official venue of Eurovision 1998. Also, if you're thinking that Eurovision 1998 was the biggest international event that Birmingham hosted that year, no. It wasn't even the biggest international event that Birmingham held that month, because the G8 summit took place there less than a week later. In fact, Terry Wogan mentioned in his opening narration that the hotel room he'd just vacated would next be occupied by Bill Clinton. Speaking of Terry, he was an obvious choice to host the event, having been the familiar voice of Eurovision on the BBC every year since 1980, as well as twice in the 70s. However, a co-host was still needed, and who better than Ulrika Johnson, the Swedish-British presenter of shows like the aforementioned Gladiators, who spoke fluent French. And if you're wondering how Terry managed to pull double duties on the night as presenter and commentator, well, for the most part, he didn't. 
His commentary booth was built near the stage to allow him to switch between the two easily, but that's still where he spent the majority of the evening, only emerging for the opening, part of the interval, and for the coronation of the winner, with the rest of the evening's presenting duties falling entirely on Ulrika's shoulders. It's a bit weird to think about it now, when we're used to massive arenas that house nearly 10,000 Euro fans, but there were only 4,000 people in attendance in 1998. Although, throughout the show, you could be forgiven for thinking there were significantly more, because it's a pretty boisterous crowd there. The BBC had wheeled out their concert orchestra for the artist's disposal, and that brings us to an interesting point. The 1998 Eurovision Song Contest was a landmark for a few different reasons. For one, this was the final year where a live orchestra was made available, as the idea was ditched from 1999 onwards as a cost-cutting measure, and presumably also because there was a lot more electronic music being entered for the competition, as evidenced by Gina G's Apple Max in the background at Oslo in 1996. This was also the final year where the rule was in place forcing countries to submit their entries in one of their native languages, and indeed, in 1999, Charlotte Nilsson would go on to win for Sweden with the English language Take Me To Your Heaven. 1998 wasn't just a year of endings though, it was also a beginning of sorts. The first Eurovision Song Contest where the preference was for televoting. The scheme had been piloted in 1997 in Dublin, with five countries being able to cast their votes by phone. And the successful trial led to the widespread adoption of the process this time around, with exceptions only for countries where logistical reasons meant a televote was going to cause problems. So, in this case, Hungary, Romania and Turkey. So this is a really interesting instalment to go back and watch through modern eyes because it's very much a transitional moment at Eurovision, and there's no pun intended there, at a time when several modern elements of the competition were just beginning to emerge and some of the old ways starting to fade into the background. Now, if we can take Terry Wogan's word as gospel, and I would recommend as a general rule that we don't, but on this occasion I'll make an exception, the majority of the pre-contest publicity centred around two countries, Israel and Germany. Israel had hit the headlines with their selection of Dana International as their entrant, the first openly transgender contestant at Eurovision, which caused a significant amount of protest in her native Israel, as well as from other countries. Germany, meanwhile, were notorious for an entirely different reason, sending Schlagersinger Gildo Horn, whose flamboyant clothes and balding mullet were obviously catnip to commentators. His song was a kind of knowing parody of Eurovision, but that didn't make Gildo hat euch lieb, or Gildo loves you, any less creepy and it was still seen as a fairly major contender for the win. There were also some amusing pre-contest controversies. Apparently, the Greek entry composer Yanis Balvis was behaving aggressively backstage, leading to his accreditation for the event being withdrawn, and Greece themselves briefly withdrawing from the event on the day of the contest, before changing their minds shortly afterwards. There was also a lot of tension involving the Turkish entry, as in rehearsals their conductor was leading the orchestra at too slow a tempo and breaking the strict three-minute time limit, which would have led to Turkey's disqualification on the night. But, as it happened, in the event, he brought it in at a swift two minutes and 59 seconds. Phew! Watching the contest back now, it's easy to see how much has changed in the course of 25 years. These days, stage presentation is considered a key determining factor in your chances of success at Eurovision, and the UK's absolute inability to cotton on to this was part of the reason we did so badly for such a long time. But back in 1998, it was basically expected that everyone would turn up in their smartest outfit and just sing politely down the camera in what was basically a two-hour edition of Top of the Pops. It's quite jarring to watch it now, because it does feel quite monotonous, but I have such vivid memories of watching Eurovision in the 90s, and it feeling like this hugely glamorous, exotic international treat. So I suppose that just goes to show how much our expectations have changed since then. So what of the contest itself? 
Well, the BBC came up with a stage that was fairly neutral and adaptable for the performers, with lots of deep hues of blues and purples, recessed lights in the background, and some peculiar standalone one-sided curved arches that looked a bit like brontosauruses from a certain angle. The introductory videos created for the occasion were meant to show the changing face of the United Kingdom, showing a primitive, sepia-toned portrayal of life in the UK, and then transitioning that into a full-colour, modern, new labourised version of it. So they cover topics like football, for example, or a day at the seaside. I would say not all of these were completely successful. One of them seemed to suggest that the modern equivalent of the Roman baths was Orton Towers. I'm not quite sure who thought of that idea. They were soundtracked by instrumental versions of hot British music from the likes of the Blue Tones, the Manic Street Preachers, Catatonia, and even Duran Duran. As for the performances themselves, there were some good tunes this year. Obviously Dana International was the standout, but the UK was no slouch either, with Imani's R&B-tinged Where Are You making a really strong impact on the night. I think it probably would be remembered a lot more fondly if we hadn't won already in the previous year. I think it tends to get lost in the general Katrina mania of the time, but it's definitely one of the strongest entries we've sent in the last 30 years. Other creditable entries for that year, for my money, came from Malta, Belgium, Netherlands and Sweden. And if you do fancy going back for a rewatch, it's only three hours. There are a couple of familiar faces you might want to watch out for. The Dutch entry that year was Edcilia, who's now perhaps better known as the one of the hosts from Rotterdam 2021. And representing Estonia in 1998 was none other than Coit Tume of Verona fame, looking extremely baby-faced as he was just 19 years old at the time. So what about the hosts? Well, I don't think it's any great shock to say that a lot of Terry Wogan's commentary hasn't aged especially well in the interim. I went in prepared for him to be sarcastic and to make some mean-spirited jokes in the grand tradition of the UK at Eurovision, but what I hadn't quite steeled myself for was the fact that some of the stuff he says was genuinely quite gross. For example, his comments about the Swiss entrant Gunva's dress and how it promised more than it delivered, a reference to the flesh-coloured panels over her breasts, and presumably a reference to how he would have liked a better look at her actual boobs. Stay classy, Terry. Ulrika, on the other hand, I think did a phenomenal job on the night. She had by far the harder task, and as she joked just before starting the results that if anything is going to go wrong, it's going to happen now, she was clearly nervous, but she had a brilliantly unflappable demeanour. Part of the poison chalice of hosting at Eurovision, particularly in this era, was trying to rein in the jury spokespeople from padding out their parts too much, and I thought Ulrika did a great job of being warm and friendly with them, allowing them to have their moment or two in the spotlight, while also keeping them under control and making sure the show kept running to time. There was, of course, an infamous incident with Dutch spokesperson Connie van den Bos, which I have to admit I reference with my husband on pretty much a weekly basis at this point, but which I think has also led to Ulrika being unfairly maligned as a result when it wasn't her fault at all. If you're unfamiliar with what happened, Connie represented the Netherlands in 1965 and expressed her empathy for the contestants when she appeared on screen to give the results of the Dutch televote. Ulrika engaged with her, saying, of course, you've taken part, to which Connie responded, long ago. But her comment came while Ulrika was still talking, and it wasn't heard by the audience in the arena. So when Ulrika replied, a long time ago was it, it sounded like it had just come completely out of the blue and that she was just being really catty, so the crowd went absolutely wild. Ulrika realised what had happened immediately and sounded absolutely mortified, but like I said, genuinely not her fault, simple miscommunication, but very funny. I know you, of course taken part so you must be it's feeling their nerves <laughs> a long time ago was it <laughs> no, I didn't do you want to know 1965 wow i'm very impressed here are the results
The voting in 1998 was genuinely thrilling, with four countries in close competition for the win throughout the results. Israel, the United Kingdom, Malta and the Netherlands, and the lead was often changing at multiple points within a single country giving their results. Incidentally, the scoreboard this year was a mixture of the traditional list of all the countries and their scores, and a more fancy map-style version where we saw the points flying across geographically to the various countries. This was really nice to look at, but generally pretty unhelpful, because every time they switched to it, you only saw the points being given out for that round, and there was no way to look at the overall scores. So unless you were keeping really detailed notes at home, you couldn't actually see what it meant for everyone else and the overall placings without the input of your local commentator. Anyway, thrillingly, it all came down to the final set of votes, with Israel and Malta tied on 166 each, and the UK very close behind on 157, with just the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia left to give their results. Terry Wogan said at this point, only Israel and Malta can win it, which was mathematically incorrect, as the UK was only 9 points behind both of them, and was technically capable of overtaking. As it happened, Macedonia gave Israel 8 points, 10 to the United Kingdom, and their 12 went to Croatia, while Malta got nothing at all, leaving Israel as the overall winners, the UK in second place, and Malta just one point behind them in third. Terry Wogan immediately scarpered out of his commentary booth to join Ulrika on the stage, alongside Katrina Leskinich to present the trophy to the winners. But there was a pretty amusing delay when it turned out they'd lost Dana International somewhere backstage. She'd popped off to get changed and donned a Jean-Paul Gaultier outfit for her reprise performance of Diva, a true icon. So that was Eurovision 1998, and I think despite the UK's general sneering attitude to the contest as a whole, it showed a level of professionalism and a deep-seated respect for the contest that enabled us to hold our heads up high, and I hope we'll do the same at Liverpool in 2023. I think the signs are looking pretty good so far. That's all from me for now. Don't forget to hit subscribe if you'd like to have future episodes of Doosport automatically added to your podcast feed. Thank you for listening, and until next time, good night Europe, and good morning Australia.